0: Check one two. Oh suddenly it's working. But why now?
1: I grew up in Wisconsin, and my mom and I took a, an intro birding class at a local nature center. And then I pretty much promptly stopped birding almost entirely for about five years, actually. They was like, What are you even thinking? But, but most of my friends are used to me just kind of being a little out there and, and doing what I want to do anyway. Yeah, don't get me wrong. If, I, if my finances had been different, I definitely would have enjoyed uh, a few more hot showers. <laughs>
0: Welcome to episode 12 of the Big Year Podcast. I promise to make this introduction a little bit more concise than last time. Thank you. For those of you listening for the first time, my name is Robert Bowmander, but from 1981 to 2021, I was called Captain Video during my 41 years with the Toronto Blue Jays. Along the way, I performed as a magician and escape artist managed the computer system for the world-renowned Pizza Pizza, volunteered in elementary schools and hospital for sick children doing magic storytelling and science demonstrations. I've done a variety of big years in North America since I became a burger in 2012 and now spend my time since my Canada big year in 2022, writing about my adventures in birding and my travels across Canada and North America and hosting this very podcast. We do have a variety of exciting guests coming up in the future episodes. They have studied field ornithology in college, have done waterfowl surveys for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, were hired on by the U.S. Forestry Service, working as environmental educators and leading bird walks, had an internship with the Cape May Bird Observatory as an interpretive naturalist, worked with Massachusetts Audubon doing shorebird work, have been to Hawaii doing field research on honeycreepers, managed a nature center in South Texas, and even worked as Worofsky Field Techs. And that is just today's guest, Tiffany Kirsten. I'll let her tell you about some of the other, shall we say, more eclectic endeavors that have kept her busy over the years. Suffice it to say, my resume does not even come close to stacking up against hers. Oh, and Tiffany did most of that before her 2021 Lower 48 Big Year. A year where she broke the all-time record for the Lower 48 ABA area with 726 species, all while in the midst of some challenging life events. Oh, did I mention that she also did it while the COVID-19 pandemic was raging all around her? We had such an enjoyable and wide-ranging conversation that I have had to divide this into two episodes. With all that being said, let's just get on with it and enjoy part one of my conversation with South Texas birder Tiffany Kirsten. Welcome to this episode of the Big Year Podcast. We're talking to Tiffany Kirsten, who did a North American lower 48 Big Year. She broke the lower 48 record, which stood for how many years, Tiffany? it was broken the following year did you feel good about that or were you like now i have to go out and break it again
1: oh i i did it once and i loved it but never again
0: before we get into that 2021 hectic year you did it kind of in the midst of covid
1: absolutely
0: which is quite remarkable considering how many things were locked down and how tough it was to travel and fly but you obviously had a lot of experience birding before you did a big year. Tell me about your journey into becoming a birder and how that affected your life and how it led you to a big year.
1: Yeah, I started birding when I was 12. I grew up in Wisconsin, and my mom and I took a, an intro birding class at a local nature center And Sand Crane was my stark bird. We had about 2,000 of them all displaying and courting in the back of a farm field.
0: It is just such a majestic bird. And I know the first time I ever saw one, I was just in awe that we have these living dinosaurs all around us. Mm -hmm. And before you become a birder, you almost take them for granted. Absolutely. Once you were sparked into action to become a birder by that sandhill crane, what was your next uh, phase of birding? Well, I was actually
1: a backyard birder for about 10 years, actually, until college. And got back into it in college. And took field ornithology, and then started doing volunteer waterfall waterfowl surveys for the Fish and Wildlife Service. I got hired on by the U.S. Forest Service, and so I was an inv- environmental educator for four of the five years that I was in college, and led bird walks there at the visitor center that I worked at. And then after I graduated, I went to Northland College in Northern Wisconsin. After I graduated, I took an internship with the Kate May Bird Observatory as an interpretive naturalist. So that kind of was the start of birding really becoming my
0: career. That is phenomenal. To be able to take your passion and make it your living is something a lot of people envy and a lot of people can be sparked into doing themselves because taking the time to go out birding and learn the birds is one thing and being passionate about it, but we all have to go back to our regular jobs afterward. But if that is your job. Did you find sometimes it was hard to separate birding as a living and birding for pleasure?
1: Not, not back then. So I worked for the May Bird Observatory and then I worked for uh, Massachusetts Audubon doing some shorebird work, went out and worked in Hawaii doing some field research on the honeycreepers there, and then ended up managing a nature center here in South Texas, actually, which is where I live now, McAllen Nature Center. And I've been there
0: a number of times. We probably met somewhere along the line, whether it was in Cape May or McCallum, because I've been visiting those places since 2012, off and on. So Yeah,
1: so it was when I started managing the Nature Center that I kind of was like, okay, this isn't actually, you know, it's become a little more of my career and a little bit less of my hobby. And actually, Sporovsky Optic added me on as a field tech in 2015. I had had moved here to South Texas in 2013. In 2015, they added me on as a field tech. So basically, they gave me the equipment on a long-term loan in exchange for the soft promotion of being seen using it in the field and then I pretty much promptly stopped birding almost entirely for about five years actually about till COVID hit not because I didn't like birding but because I felt like I was getting my nature fixed in during the work day and then I found actually found Latin dance and so I was dancing on like a semi-professional Latin dance team for a couple of years and then I just found all of these other hobbies and started shooting competitive archery and yeah it wasn't like I, I stopped liking birding but there was just so many other things going
0: on. Well, it does give you a well-rounded life. And it also, in many ways that you didn't even realize, prepared you for doing a big year.
1: Yeah. So COVID hit and uh, I had been managing the nature center. The the nature center let me go. I ended up letting all of the staff go. And I started guiding on the side. I had bought a house earlier in 2020 and then was let go from my job uh, a few months later in 2020 still. And so I just started bird guiding on the side to pay my mortgage while I was waiting to to figure out what was next for me. I was a single unemployed homeowner in the middle of a global pandemic. Yikes. <laughs> so yeah, it felt like life couldn't get much worse. I had no idea if I was going to lose my house, if I was going to have to take a job elsewhere and move. And I ended up the second week in January guiding Charlie Boswick, who did an, who was doing an ABA big year. And I got him for three or four days here and got him all of our thirty or so valley specialties and then there were some ABA rarities that were hanging around too ruddy ground dove and Crimson colored grosbeak, speak, things like that. So we spent three or four days, got him all those birds for his big year and, you know, we got to talking three or four days spending just hiking alone with people. And, you know, I was like, well this is my situation right now and he's like, well, he's like, you're not married or anything. Why don't you just also do a big year? Which I just I just laughed because I was like, because I have a house and I have a dog and I have almost no savings because I was you know, recuperating, recuperating funds from moving costs and whatnot. So another month went by and that's about another month later is when I finally decided to actually go through with doing a big year.
0: And what preparations did you have to make considering that you didn't have a job, you didn't have money, and you had a dog that would miss you a lot if you just Started running out on every day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I I had a temporary roommate at the time. Actually, I had been before COVID hit. I had been training for the show American Ninja Warrior, and COVID shut down all of that. I had applied for the show, but not, but they didn't make any selections from the applicants that year. They ended up inviting back some returning people. So a woman that I I trained with at the gym actually came to live with me for a few months so that she could be closer to the gym to train every day because she'd gotten the call to be on the show. So I left my dog with her, and I was just piecing things together. I was guiding whenever I could I did not have the financial part of my big year worked out by any means. It was like one step at a time, and I figured at some point I'd have to quit and get a job.
0: Right. So you literally went into 2021 with a half-baked plan, so to speak, and just said, "You know what? It's going to work out somehow. I'll figure it out along the way."
1: Yeah, so it was it was like the second week in January that I had guided Charlie, and then it was right around the second week in February I'd actually taken a week or five life birds or bird species I'd never seen before that were in Arizona and i was really stressed about where my next job was going to come from applying for jobs all over the country had lots of interviews and no job offers and so I, I used to drive a chevy spark actually that's the car that i drove for my entire big years tiny little compact car and that's great on gas so i yes. was like well i'm been a week i'm gonna go to arizona i'm gonna try to see these five life birds and then i'm gonna come back and it was good for me to kind of just like de-stress and get away from things and hopefully come back with a little bit of a healthier mindset about where my life was headed. And I was on my second night. I just like threw my backpacking tent in the car and the camp stove. I was literally eating like $1.50 condensed soup cans over the stove. It was a budget trip. Second Camping, I was leaving Franklin Mountain State Park outside of El Paso. And I flushed some scaled quail on my way out of the park and at that point friends of mine had already been reaching out to me because I was guess I was up near the top for eBird for eBirders in the United States in early February people were reaching out to me and they were like are you doing a big year and I was like this is crazy you guys are crazy no like I'm not doing a big year I'm just trying to keep my life together and I flushed some scaled quail on my way out of the park that morning and that was my 287th bird for the year and I was kind of like huh and then I drove a few miles and then I pulled over literally on the side of the road right there and I got on my social media and I did a little story on my Facebook and my Instagram and I was like, I don't know where my life is headed, but effective immediately, I'm doing a big year until life demands otherwise.
0: Wow, that is fantastic. It- shows how people who have very serious issues in their life can just stop, take a step back and say, it may seem bad, but you know what? I can take my mind and flip it around and just do whatever I think is positive and what's going to make my life feel better. And if I can't do anything else, I might as well do a big year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I kind of thought that way. Maybe not so much as like, this is like something good that I can do to like change my life around. But to me, it was like, okay, this is a distraction. Like I have this thing that I tend to be pretty like hyper-focused when I find something, find a project or whatever. And this was kind of one of those situations where I was like, okay, well, like my purpose in life right now can be to find as many bird species as I can. And that was just kind of a, yeah, a focus or a distraction in my life from the rest of my life.
0: So it's February and now you're sitting in your car thinking, I'm going to do a big year. Did you think lower 48 at the time, or did you have the idea that it might be an ABA big year?
1: I knew that it was going to have to be lower 48, just financially, that you know, that Alaska and Hawaii were not going to be within my budget by any means. But I had to reroute, like I had to replan. I actually had planned just a few hours later to meet a friend of mine in Arizona for I needed sagebrush sparrow. I hadn't seen it, but it gotten split. So that was one of my five targets, my lifers for the trip and I messaged my friend that I was supposed to meet in a few hours and I said, change of plan. I need sagebrush sparrow still, but I also need everything else. I'm doing the big year. <laughs> and so I met up with him, you know, we got the sagebrush sparrow and then it was instantly like oh well like you need Mexican chickadee." so I was right down there by portals like oh got to pick up Mexican chickadee." Cried for it missed it had to go back for that one later but it was instant an instant need to shift my plan for the next several days and I, I didn't have you know most most birders who do a big year on the scale have planned for months if not years and I had literally no plan and quite honestly very little knowledge of birds
0: in the west did that give you pause at any time, or did it just seem like even better challenge than something that you wanted to surmount?
1: I had have, I have thought about doing Arizona and then possibly going home, and I, I didn't even bring my laptop with me on my trip. I had really no reason to. I wanted to get away from applying for jobs and working and whatnot, so I, I had left it at home, and so I didn't even really have like a really a way that I could even start planning if I had wanted to, being on the road. But I ultimately decided that I was closer already to California than I was to Texas. So I ended up deciding to just continue on. And that trip ended up being about three and a half weeks.
0: It was originally supposed to be a week. Did the rest of the people in your life think what the hell happened to you or did were they all... <laughs> <laughs> because I know when I, when I did it the first time in 2012, people didn't understand what had happened to me, why I started birding and then decided I was going to be jumping around the country whenever I had a day off or a week off and ending up in Alaska at one point. People just didn't quite get it, why anyone would do what I was doing. Did you have people in your life, that, especially family members, that thought you had flipped your lid?
1: My family actually, we're not super close. And uh, I don't think anyone in my family really knew about it at this point, at least during that first trip that I was on for those three and a half weeks. And I'm sure there are others in my life who were probably confused, but honestly, nobody really outwardly was like, what are you even thinking? But but most of my friends are used to me just kind of being a little out there and, and doing what I want to do anyway, so honestly, I don't know that too many of my friends were very surprised.
0: Did you have friends that were birders that lent a hand every once in a while to help you with your travel or find a bird for you?
1: Yeah, I have friends that are bird guides, and, and I did not have the resources ever, so I didn't hire a bird guide ever on my big year, but lots of friends of mine and acquaintances of mine and even a few strangers people that I didn't know who were bird guides just basically donated their services to my efforts and helped me out in that sense yeah it was you know a lot of a lot of birders I think a lot of bigger birders like to have you know everything be self-found and this and that Mm -hmm. and I very openly admit that I had lots of help from lots of people in both logistics and like bird finding logistics and then just like travel logistics and and friends and even acquaintances of mine picking me up from airports and offering for me to stay at their place and it was a budget year and i absolutely could not have done it without without all those people's
0: help that's one thing about the birding community that i discovered even when i first started in 2012 and then traveling around canada last year was that there's probably zero percentage of birders that would not go out of their way to help you, especially when you're in a bit of a fix and you don't have a car or you can't get to a certain place or you need directions. Birders just seem to come out of the woodwork and grant you this special access when you're doing a big year. And it's such an incredible feeling to know that there are people out there that will take time out of their own days and their own lives to get you that one extra bird.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that was absolutely my experience. And, you know, I had a, I had a women's safety mission throughout the course of my big year. I had a fundraiser going, and then I was gifting personal safety alarms to women that I met on the trails. And that was a really, really connective project, too, to be chatting with these women about women's safety in the outdoors and, you know, continuing to connect with them. Later on in my year, when I started chasing more and more individual birds by plane, I would post a lot on social media. And I would say, you know, I'm going to be in these approximate locations, on these approximate dates you know no detail no specific details for safety reasons if there are any women birders in the area that want to meet up let me know and I never made any specific ask aside from just an an interest in connecting but lots of times those birders would be like yes I'd love to reserve the campsite for us or I can pick you up from the airport and logistically that helps a ton actually my friend Debbie picked me up my very last bird of the year was a northern lapwing in New Jersey and she picked me up from the Philadelphia airport and drove me over. And the logistics there were that if she hadn't offered to do that, I probably would have had to wait the entire next day to go because by the time I sat in line for a rental car and got to the bird, it probably would have been dark. People helped me in so many different ways.
0: One thing that I'm glad you brought up because this has been a topic of conversation with some of the other women who have done big years is that in some ways it's a little bit different than A man just going off into the middle of nowhere birding because there are personal safety issues and there can be situations that can, if not dangerous, make you uncomfortable. How did you handle all that, handing out of personal safety devices?
1: Yeah, so I actually had a really nerve-wracking experience. At sandia Crest outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico, in late February. And I was up there by myself in my little Chevy Spark, and a white pickup truck came up, and, and two men got out. They weren't dressed for 12,000 feet in the middle of winter. They had really light jackets on, and baggy jeans, and tennis shoes. And the end, the end result was nothing happened, but they loitered around for a while and walked the trail, maybe. Really nervous. They they came back to the trailhead, smoked a cigarette. Neither of them had even acknowledged my existence at all. You know, I didn't want them to come over to me, but a little head nod or a hand wave goes a long way. And I basically had a full-out anxiety attack. And it was a few days after that, actually, that the advertisement the personal safety alarm showed up in my social media and the company is called She's Birdie even though it's nothing to do with bird watching Oh wow Yeah It's just a general women's safety company so that was a a coincidence and it felt very serendipitous that it showed up in my social media
0: So you ordered it right away?
1: Yeah a friend of mine offered to actually donate the funds for the first 100 alarms at whatever discounted cost I could get them at and by the time I got back from that first three and a half week trip they were already on my doorstep ready to go Wow
0: What was your game plan for distributing them, did you think ahead to making it a social media push or were you just handing them out wherever you met someone?
1: Yeah, I was handing them out. I started my GoFundMe, the fundraiser, and for every, for every $50 fundraise, 35 would go towards my travels and 15 would go to purchase another half-size alarm. And so that, that was a pretty cool project. It was really fun to connect with people and talk about women's safety in the outdoors. Really, really empowering and powerful experiences sharing stories of, of safety or feelings lack thereof in the outdoors. And that project, honestly, basically self-perpetuated itself where I would give an alarm out and then that person would be inspired to donate, uh, basically pay it forward for another woman to get an alarm.
0: That's an incredible story. That's something that is necessary to talk about, yet some people are also uncomfortable talking about it because they don't want to make women sound vulnerable, but it's an empowering thing. And that's important to show that there are so many ways that women can empower themselves that have nothing to do with manliness and strength and all this other stuff.
1: For sure. Yeah. And it's been interesting. So I, I traveled the country now, was on a speaking tour this spring, all about my big year in regards to women's safety and whatnot. And it's fascinating to hear some of the things that the men have to say, actually, in the room. I was talking with a couple one time and A husband and wife have been married for more than 30 years. And the the woman made some comment about safety. I'm forgetting exactly what it was. But the man's response was to look at her and be like, you what? Like, I had no idea you had these thoughts. This just kind of goes to show how... It's seldom this is talked about, you know. A couple of married for more than 30 years have never had this conversation about how they perceive life and how they go about life is different due to their
0: gender. I'm glad that you're out there talking about it and adding to the conversation where it may not have taken place.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, part of, part of those gender differences is creating more equality in terms of feeling safe in the outdoors. You look at the demographic of birding and the majority of birders are women the entry level the majority of birders are women but then you get up into more specialized things and birding birding can be whatever you want it to be you're not not a birder if you don't if you don't do a big year you're not not a birder if you haven't seen 500 life birds but for those women wanting to grow and learn and travel more and become a more advanced birder we're seeing something happening Because there are very, very few women figure birders. There's very, very few women bird guides. Way less than 10% of bird guides in the United States are women. And so we're just seeing a glass ceiling of of sorts. And and there's many, I think there's many reasons for that. But definitely one of them seems to be
0: safety. And you are kind of changing the game now, which is incredible. Now women are happily creeping up into the top echelons of big-year birding and i hope you're contributing to more women becoming guides and helping other women get into birding as a hobby or as a career
1: yeah it's starting to change you know we're we're nowhere near where we need to be but it definitely has been changing it seems over the last couple of decades and even over the last decade and so that's that's promising so i after my big year i started my own birding tour company and so i'm based here out of south texas and i, I mostly lead here in texas and to panama so far but i'm going to be expanding into other international tours but i specialize in women's tours and so i do small women only retreats in texas and panama and all genders i do offer all gender tours as well but i found that creating a space solely for women it's a whole different vibe it's really pretty wild Because I think another one of the issues with women learning and growing in birding is that oftentimes we feel, whether it's warranted or not, I think sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, but we can feel intimidated by being out in the field birding with a bunch of men and you need to be able to ask the quote-unquote stupid questions. My number one rule for birding with me is that there are no stupid questions and or to make mis-IDs like misidentifying birds is like quick knee-jerk reactions as to what you think something is is what's going to help you become a better birder because then you can kind of deconstruct that well why did I say that or why did I think that oh you know last year I realized that there's quite a bit of similarities between a Ringed kingfisher and an adult red-shouldered hawk. I I missed this out of the corner of my eye. Yeah, something really low and pretty large flew over the path, and I, I barely saw it. I you know I admitted I barely saw it, but I was like, I think it might have been this. It might have been a ringed kingfisher. And then we walked another hundred yards, and there was an adult red-shouldered hawk. It's like, oh yeah, kind of the same. You know, kind of rufousy dark with like light spots and yeah. It, you know, and it's a teachable moment and you know some people think that i'm maybe one of the expect that i'm one of the best birders in north america or something now because i've seen each bird once <laughs> and That's definitely not the case. I make my errors, too. And that's part of, I think, what sets me kind of apart from some bird guys. I am not afraid to admit when I'm wrong. And it it becomes a teachable moment. It's not about getting everything right all the time. You know, I instantly corrected myself with that mis-ID that I made. And it creates a learning lesson for the group. And you really do start to think about birds in a different way when you stop being so careful and closed off about the possibility of making a mistake because, in order to not make any mistakes, you would have to not identify any birds.
0: Exactly. And so now you're in February. You decided that it's going to be a big year. What did you end up doing next?
1: Oh, I ran all over so many places. Let me see. So after Arizona in February, I went to California and then I ended up actually flying from California to northern Minnesota to get a bunch of Oreo stuff up there. Spent four days, came back and came back to Texas by way of Albuquerque and got home and then got my my blog and my fundraise and everything set up. Started getting a little bit organized. I it did most of my birding I guess in March I think I was here for the most part in South Texas and guiding a lot trying to trying to make some money and then I spent some time in April up at High Island actually working for Swarovski and volunteering for Houston Audubon. Usually they offer guided bird walks but since it was COVID they weren't doing anything formal. so I actually just went up there with a couple extra pairs of binoculars and spent about 10 days just kind of wandering around and talking with birders and showing them optics and collecting gear birds. I think I got like 19 new there. My goal was to get as many things as I could on migration, so I wouldn't have to go all these places to try to chase things down on the breeding ground.
0: One of my favorite birding trips was to High Island in April, and just looking at a water drip and seeing five warblers that in Ontario in May might take. Three weeks, even if you saw them all. Yeah. At that time, had you started chasing the rarities and flying across the country for them yet? Or were you still just in the early stages of preparing to...
1: I actually never really thought that I was going to get to the point of chasing rarities. When I launched my project on March 8th, International Women's Day, my goal was 700 species and something like a dozen people before me had seen 700 species in the lower 48 in one year it wasn't you know it wasn't record-breaking but i thought it was an admirable goal and it was one that i but honestly didn't know if i was going to be able to meet and so i had i had mapped it out all the possibilities the regularly occurring birds with location a location b location c so much logistical planning whenever i wasn't somewhere i was sitting at home on my computer <laughs> mapping out with the rest of the year and then amending it after each trip and i really really didn't chase anything except in April, a Western showed up in Florida and Charlie went to go see it and my friends the McQuaids went to go see it and lots of people all from all over going to see this western Spendalish I was like well I'm doing a big year I have to go see this bird and so I booked a plane ticket for the very next day down to Miami and with a, with a return ticket for the day after that the ticket was about $600 and then you know I getting ready for that I booked my car rental a Chevy Spark a tiny little compact car that I drive drove in my day to day life. I've upgraded now to a Subaru. Quality of life. I rented a Chevy Spark down there for 24 hours. It was spring break. And so it was more than $200 for a 24 hour rental for a tiny little
0: compact. I discovered that in 2022 and suddenly people were traveling again and companies were taking reservations, cars they knew they may not have. I was on my way to Calgary airport and I got a phone call saying, sorry, we don't have a car for you tomorrow. And I was like, what do you mean? I have a reservation. And it was like this scene from a Seinfeld episode. Isn't the reservation the car? I ended up reaching out via Facebook, just anybody in Alberta that might help me get to this bird I was chasing. And this couple picked me up at my hotel at evening and took me to see the bird. And that was another thing that I'm sure you experienced, which is just people you've never met and you're just getting in their car and driving away with them. For me, it was like, there were times where I I was in the car and already on the way in thought, just got into a car of somebody who just messaged me on Facebook and told me they were taking me somewhere. Did you ever feel like you were doing that? And the back of your brain said, why am I doing that?
1: There was a little bit. So for me, and I guess we didn't talk about this before, but I'm actually I'm actually an assault survivor. I was assaulted by my archery coach in 2018. And so that's my backstory, if you've read any of the media on me and whatnot. And doing my big year was so incredibly healing to me in so many ways. And I, I think that that was one of the ways, too, actually, was like kind of learning to trust humanity again. Mm-hmm. That maybe it's not the greatest. Idea to get in the car with strangers all the time. but I, I did honestly, I didn't ever really get in the car with someone and think, have my nervous system yell at me. Mm-hmm. It was very much like women birders, and I, I felt very safe in the decisions that I made actually during my big year. And part of that might be because my big year was so public following, and it's like, well, if anyone should try to pull anything, you know, there's a very large amount of people that are paying attention here.
0: Mm-hmm feeling of safety so you got to spend i assume i
1: did i got to spend and i had like two hours spare i picked up least turn and magnificent cricket bird on that same trip which those birds i easily could have gotten here in texas (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, like an hour and a half from my house and then i got back to the airport and i was like what on earth did i just do this is insane you know i don't have a job i'm doing this big year but i'm not you know i'm not trying to break a record and, you know, I had spent more than $900 on the bird at this point. So I got back to the airport and I, I bought a $12 Mai Tai can drink to celebrate because what else was I going to do? I already spent $900. What was another 12 <laughs> Well,
0: yeah, that's a great thing to do is just to celebrate these birds because you know how much the bird cost you. And I, I always celebrate with a steak dinner or something like that. So I understand that.
1: Yeah, well, so that was my most expensive bird of the year by far. And I ended up actually just spending just over $22,000 on my big year, which is a decent chunk of change, but it's super low budget for, for a big year of this scale.
0: Did you spend most of the time camping wherever you could?
1: Yeah, so I spent 148 nights away from home. And of that, I paid for eighteen nights in hotel rooms, and I, I did do some travel with Borovsky. So when I traveled with them, they paid for my hotel. So that doesn't count into there. But I estimate I probably spent camper about a hundred nights.
0: That is something that would be very difficult for me. I did a little camping even before I was a birder, and the closest I came to camping during my 2012 big year was to drive into a campsite and get a spot near the shower and sleep in the back seat. I was lucky, sort of like you with Swarovski, in 2012 I had a job that was paying me to travel. So I got all the rental cars included, a lot of the hotels included, and I just learned to love that lifestyle. So when it came to last year, traveling across the country, it was very difficult difficult for me to not stay in hotels but as you say everybody has their own way of birding and there is no right way or wrong way it's whatever makes you comfortable gives you joy really that's what birding really needs to be about it's what gives you joy yeah
1: don't, yeah don't get me wrong if I, if my finances had been different i definitely would have enjoyed uh, a few more hot showers <laughs> a few more hotel shower on my big year
0: Well, thank you very much for joining me for part one of our chat with Tiffany. Next time, we shall pick it up where we left off and see what other challenges Tiffany had to overcome as she slowly crept towards the all-time record for the lower 48 ABA area and what it took to commit to setting the all-time record. Thank you to Tiffany and thanks to all of you for joining me and hopefully you'll hear me next time for part two of my chat with Tiffany Kirsten. May the birds be with you.